Welcome to School Choice Report, where we explore everything about one of the most important education topics. I'm your host, David Hardy. In this podcast, we'll be talking to experts, educators, and parents to get a deep dive into the world of school choice. Whether you're an advocate, skeptic, or just curious, this podcast is for you. So sit back, relax, and let's get started with the conversation. Hello and welcome to the School Choice Report. My name is David Hardy. This week, our guest is Margaret Mackey Raymond, Director of Credo, Stanford Center for Research on Educational Outcomes. Stanford Center for Research on Educational Outcomes strives to provide educational policymakers with reliable, empirical evidence about student achievement at the primary and secondary school levels. Credo accomplishes this goal by means of rigorous research and program evaluation. Educators, lawmakers, and parents use Credo publications to strengthen their focus on results of innovative programs, charter school legislation, curricula, and accountability practices with the overall goal of providing universal public education, which enables every student to succeed. Margaret Mackey Raymond, founding director of Credo, has steered the group to national prominence as a rigorous independent source of policy and program analysis. She has done extensive work in public policy and education reform and is currently researching the development of competitive markets and the creation of reliable data on program performance. She leads Credo in investigating the effectiveness of public schools. Welcome, Dr. Raymond. I'm really very happy to be invited to be part of your podcast today. Thanks for inviting me. I'm glad you're joining us. So tell me a little bit more about Credo and what you're doing there. Sure. Well, Credo is an independent and nonpartisan research team. We're housed at Stanford University. Mm -hmm. And our idea is to bring a rigorous analysis of promising education reform opportunities under the microscope to see if they work so that we can focus as much energy and, and resources as possible on things that work to improve children's life chances over time. We have a mantra um, that guides our work, and that is that we let the data speak. We try very hard not to bring our own preferences or ideologies or opinions to the work, we analyze data that we get from state education agencies through a variety of agreements that we have with them. And we look at what the data actually tell us about how students are learning. And we let that guide the kinds of uh, conclusions we draw and the recommendations that we make for the community at large. Now, you've seen a multitude of reports and studies that showcase the re what reforms can positively impact education through our nation. What are the recurring themes you see when you look at these at this data and, and what looks like it's making positive, lasting impacts? Well, I, I guess the first thing to say is that it's sort of depressing to be an education researcher when you do study after study and the results are not particularly positive or if they are positive, the results are modest. I is, that, is that everywhere? I mean, is it? are there no. any bright lights somewhere? Oh, sure. Um, th there are. And, and let me just say, against that body of sort of we haven't learned very much that's positive, um, we actually do see that around the country there are there are states, there are communities where they really are focused in on using evidence to guide policy and they're, mm -hmm. they're actually showing improved outcomes for kids. The kinds of programs that create those improved outcomes are largely those that rely on 
highly local decision-making about what's best for kids mm-hmm. that supports um, a focus on student learning. And frankly, the work that we do on charter schools is a strong example of how that can happen mm-hmm. to good success for students across the country. So that, that doesn't shine a good light on things like national education policies, does it? Well, there have been some policies that have had impact. So it's an unpopular thing to say today, but if you look at what happened during the years of No Child Left Behind, mm-hmm. there were aspects to the accountability system that got created under NCLB that actually did increase student results. So the idea that you actually had a credible threat of accountability created an increase in student results that we would not have seen otherwise. So yeah, there are some, but there's obviously a lot of room for improvement even today. And you're right. that You can't say that stuff today. <laughs> say nice things about no child left behind. Our state legislature did look to credo and looking at student outcomes when comparing online and brick and mortar charter schools. And you know, that's the big thing here. And so what are your findings of the difference between the online and the brick and mortar schools here in Pennsylvania? Well, you just went right to the heart of it, didn't you there, Dan? I am aware this is actually a a, a conversation and a, and a focus that's lasted over a decade, as you mm-hmm. well know. Right. It's It's always been a bit of a fault line uh, in, in Pennsylvania education discussions. When we did our national charter school study that we released in June of this year, we looked at online charter school performance versus what students could have learned in brick and mortar schools. And the, the contrast was striking. The results for online charter school students was dramatically negative in magnitudes that were heartbreaking. So let me break that down for you. Students who went to online charter schools only gained two-thirds of a year of learning in reading and only one-third of a year of learning in math. Wow. Their counterparts in brick-and-mortar schools had learning that was almost two months more than a year of learning. So one year and two extra months in reading Mm -hmm. and one year and one extra month in math. So the difference between those two is more than a year of learning in a year's time. And so I think the the spotlight on that particular finding is not misplaced. Right, right. Do you guys get to the why on that? Why they're so poorly performing? You know, we did a study that really delved into this. We partnered on that study with Mathematica. Uh policy research, and with the Center for Reinventing Public Education. We dug under the, what we call under the hood Uh in that study. What we found is that a lot of online schools have a strong expectation of deep parental involvement on a daily basis in their children's education, and that the contact time, so so in, in, let's just probe that for a moment, that would suggest that parents are then education partners for teachers in classrooms or the teachers of record. Not clear to me that that's a confidence that's well-placed in all circumstances. Certainly parents care about their children's education, but it's not clear to me that they're fully able to be the teacher. Well, they found that out during the uh, pandemic. Yes, they did. But we have have data now across a number of these online schools where that's the expectation. Sure. And the other thing is contact time, that the average contact time for a student in an online school with a teacher from that online school was only about six hours a week. 
six hours a week is not much contact. Wow, yeah, it's not much, it's not much contact time at all. Now, you may remember, I, my youngest son went to an uh, online school here in Pennsylvania, and I always tell people, my wife and I were worried about him before he went to that school, and it was because he went to that school and had three days of online. Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you were online. Tuesday and Thursday, they had a fine arts program, which had, it was in uh, Westchester, Pennsylvania, near the college. It had music, it had drama, it had all kinds of visual arts, and he really liked that school, and he it wasn't like we spent, I mean, we made sure he was doing his work, but we weren't standing over him, so... My personal experience was not that way. But, I mean, you guys have the data, and, you know, that's that's some pretty profound data. So, so let me just say that there are students who can benefit from the kind of flexibility that an online school provides. We saw that in the pandemic. There were actually students whose academic learning moved ahead a great deal. I did see that. Yes, right? yes, yes, yes. Right? So it's not that enrollment in an online school is some kind of a, a penalty or a, or a sentence, but the typical child enrolled in an online school does not have the kind of structure and support and contact that you're describing for your son. Mm-hmm. The fact that he was only online three days a week and he was actually in a schooling setting the other two days makes a big difference because there's regular check-in and there's regular contact time. Mm-hmm. The one thing that also true is this, you didn't do your work, you couldn't come. They wanted to come, so it made yeah. made them do their work. It was, yeah, they, I love stuff like this. <laughs> That's great incentives. That's oh, yeah, yeah. So could lifting the charter cap help students? Because we have caps here, we have caps in New York. Uh, we have people who don't want to want any more charter schools. Do you think that's something that could help students? Absolutely, I do. I would say that as a social scientist, I am not predisposed to either liking or disliking any particular kind of school. We let the evidence tell us what to think. In the case of New York and the cap that they have there, that is a completely politically engineered constraint on providing thousands and thousands and thousands of kids who want the charter school experience from having it. Mm -hmm. The results that we see in the states that you've mentioned would suggest that more children would get benefit if they were to enroll in charter schools, but for reasons that have nothing to do with the desire to prepare kids for an adequate and robust future, those opportunities are not being provided. Regarding accountability, what are some ways states like Pennsylvania can ensure the proper funding oversight? Because we always hear uh, the schools aren't properly funded, but when you look at the the total numbers, Pennsylvania is like eighth in the nation in funding. So the, the districts say they want more. What do we do when we hear those conflicting types of information? Well, I've heard a saying that I will share with you today, which is that bad teachers like more money just as much as good teachers. <laughs> and that sort of sums it all up, right? Mm-hmm. I think that there would be there would be public appetite for improved funding for for education mm-hmm. if in fact it was coupled with a sense of performance that we were rewarding good teachers for doing a great job and we were recognizing that teachers that did not do as well might not get the same kind of rewards. It's just as the incentives that you just described for your son, Mm -hmm. like you don't get to do X, in this case, you don't get the more money, 
if you're not providing the kinds of learning that kids need. I think if we were to able to alter the incentives in our fiscal policy, I think we would see improvements in student outcomes. Mm-hmm. And two, I think we would end up with actually um, a pathway to educational funding that was rational in a larger public policy mm-hmm. sense. What do you think of about catchment areas? Because one of the things that, that looks to me like it's a problem is that if you live in a, an area where there's a bad school and everything's assigned by address, I think the kids perform best in schools that they want to be in. But we don't have a system that allows them to do that. I'm assuming there's a question in there. Okay. I guess the question is this. Do you think we'd be better off if we could get rid of those catchment zones and give people a chance to pick the school they want? Well, so I'm no means the first person to say, of course we have choice. You just have to be able to afford that, right? Mm -hmm. We don't allow that for for families that don't have that kind of means. And I consider that a form of economic redlining Mm -hmm. that I think is really damaging. I have always wondered why the accountability that you just asked about a few moments ago doesn't, in fact, recognize underperforming schools and instantly open those catchment areas so Mm -hmm. that kids can leave. I think that that would be a a minimum commitment that we could make, particularly after the pandemic. Yeah, I see people doing all kinds of strange things to get their kids out of those schools. And, and, and some people go to jail for lying about it and things like that. And when, when you have a, a law that kind of forces people to break it, it's, it's going to create problems. And that's that's the one that I think is a big problem in public education. So so let's talk a, more, a little bit more about Credo. What are some of the methods for evaluating charter, traditional, and online schools? What can school districts do with that information? Well, I I think it's really important that we think about performance measurements, not just for accountability and for punitive purposes, but also for the contributions that that information can make to improvement efforts within the school community. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't see either of those happening very much. I know when we put together a study on how charter schools are doing, my inbox explodes with emails from school operators asking for their very specific school results. And they would like them in a level of granularity that is much more disaggregated than we have the data to provide. Okay. uh, Because they are actually really motivated to find out where they need to focus their efforts. Mm Mm-hmm. And so hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of schools actually do look for that information, create that information, use that information. I wish that that was actually part of business as usual in a school, in every school. And that hasn't happened. Well, I saw uh, this this guy was the chief financial officer of the Philadelphia School District, and he was in some kind of educational meeting. And he said that one of the problems with a a school district is that if you try something, you never get a chance to really see if you can if, if it works, because as soon as you try it, there's criticism of it. And you either have to change it or shut it down. And, and that's what happens with a lot of things in public school. Have you seen that? Is that something that you, you have any familiarity with? Well, David, I think that's a wonderful point. Yes, I've seen that cycle happen over and over again. 
And something happened in this last charter school study that mm-hmm. sort of caught me off guard. And oh, I, I will share that story with you because I think it illuminates um, the point that you're trying to make here. We had, we've done three national studies of how charter schools are doing. And after the second study, it looked like charter schools were getting better. But we didn't know whether that was a stable trend or not a stable trend. Mm-hmm. And so it took us another number of years to be able to conduct the third study and produce those results. And what we found was that, in fact, there was a continuing trend. Luckily, the continuing trend of improvement in charter schools. And the insight for me is that these things take a really long time to settle out. And what I mean by that is that implementation is never as perfect as one would want. Mm -hmm. And it takes a while to recognize where programs or policies need to be tightened up and to put those efforts into place to really see if the original intent and the original design work. Mm-hmm. And in the charter school world, we see that data maturing over a period of 15 years. When you contrast that with the cycle that you just described, which is a, the two or three year cycle that you just mentioned, where you put something in place the first year, the second year people are complaining about it, and the third year people are forced to abandon or change it. You can't line up a consistent and coherent program of improvement if every three years you're tipping over the bucket and spilling all the water out. I thought that that was something that was a bit of candor that it made me feel sorry for them. <laughs> I normally don't, but that made me feel sorry for the people that work there. What have you seen regarding student success? or the lack thereof after the pandemic. It's because there are a lot of people talking about learning loss, and then there's learning loss deniers. What did you guys see on that? So I will say that there's not a lot of available data post-pandemic yet. Okay. A lot of states, all states, as you know, canceled the 2020 spring assessments. Right. 21, spring of 21, many states reinstated their their spring assessment, but allowed a considerable degree of discretion and latitude. Right. Um, and so you didn't get a full panel. It wasn't until 22 that you actually started back into what we would consider to be a pretty comprehensive testing regime. Mm-hmm. In between that, really the only consistent testing has been done with these interim assessments that districts adopt or that NWEA provides. Right. And there, what you're seeing is that the post-pandemic learning is much, much lower than it was before the pandemic. We've wiped out more than a decade of progress in student learning. Mm-hmm. And that in this last year, the 22-23 year, we didn't really make any progress. So there's uh, there's a, an amount of information that is starting to accumulate that these losses were very real and that it's really hard for students and teachers to get traction again. But that's not good news. You know, I always felt that I wish we had a longer view of how this stuff works so that you can see, you know, the the, uh, clearinghouse gets you out seven years after they graduate. And I like to be be able to go out 10 years after they graduate and kind of see, does this student, did they have a job? Can they keep a job? Did they buy a house? Are they in trouble with the police? I mean, I think that there are things that you you learn in school that can help you with that kind of stuff. And I don't think the schools that do it get the kind of credit for it. And I think that I, I love to see that kind of longitudinal kind of information. Have I've seen something they did in North Carolina a while ago, but I haven't seen anything recently. Have you? 
So a number of states are actually going from K to 24 Okay. in their data, data collection strategies. And so, yeah, I do think so. And I would also mention that many European countries are seamless between the school system and the labor force. Yes. Uh, and I think there are models there that we could learn from. Mm-hmm. Because it is. I mean, it's a, the school is preparing you to be somewhere in that labor force. So I, it just makes sense. Becky, I really appreciate you being with me this afternoon. It's been great. I have to have you back again. Well, it's been an honor to be with you, David. I've been a fan of yours for a long, long time. That's it for today's episode of School Choice Report. I hope you found the conversation enlightening and informative. If you have any feedback, questions, or suggestions for future episodes, please reach out to us at schoolchoicereport.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. Until next time, this is David Hardy signing off. Thanks for tuning in.